reading from the book of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 32, starting with verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the god in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, This is what the Lord says. I am about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest, as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, Buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it's your right to redeem it and possess it by it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver of the scales on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy, and I gave the deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the presence of my cousin, Hanamel, and of the witness who, who had signed the deed, and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord said, the God of Israel says. Take these documents, both the sealed and the unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The New Testament reading is a reading from the first letter to Timothy, chapter 6, starting with verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, men of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Jesus, Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. 
Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be good and rich, rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The Word of the Lord. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggars died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome, everyone. Um, so this is weird. I'm not usually the person who does this. Um and it was hard. It was really difficult. Um, the The readings this week were difficult for me at first, um, but my family tried to help out a lot, so they had some good ideas for me. Like Hendrix thought that um, <laughs> that I should stop every once in a while and throw a math problem in to make sure that people are paying attention, because that's what he said he would do if he was like a social studies teacher or something. Um, Probably not going to do that. Elsie thought that I should. Um, was it you? You you wanted me to do like Seinfeld style stand up. Be like, what's the deal with these prophets? I don't know. That that was one of her ideas. Nick wanted me to have um, more alliteration in my sermon, like one of those cool Instagram pastors that um, <laughs> always have a lot of alliteration. I don't have that. I don't have any of those things. Um, but Father Preston was a huge help. Um, he sent his, like, first of all, how awesome that we have someone that does this every week. Like, for me, it was really, like, exhausting and difficult um, to, like, think this heavily um, about these scriptures. And he does that every week. 
which is awesome that we have that. <laughs> um, and he he writes he does this uh, Substack, this website that he runs, the art of preaching, and he like does all the research for the the lectionary scriptures, and he sends those out to um, other pastors and preachers that subscribe to that, and he. He sent that to me to, to be helpful, so that was that was very good. So I was able to steal some stuff from there and from, like, different resources. My only disappointment with that was that um, the scriptures don't have Sadducees in them, so I didn't get to make Preston's classic Sadducee joke, which is disappointing. Um, if you know, you know. <laughs> so, all right, let's start with... Jeremiah, which is lots of fun. Um, so Jeremiah, the, the scripture that Ian read. Oh, also, I was battling a cold this week, so sorry if I have to take, like, my throat's still a little rough, so sorry if I have to take long, awkward drinks of water. Hopefully it'll hold up. Um, so Jeremiah is a prophet. If you've ever read Jeremiah, um, he, was, he was kind of a downer of a guy. He, he is always... Um, well, he's a prophet of both God's judgment and his grace, but it's a lot of judgment throughout the book. Um, it's God's judgment for Israel because they've broken the covenant God made with them. So they've broken it by acting just like all the other nations around them and following those gods instead of acting like God's called out covenant people. Um, so judgment for from God is kind of a, a tough concept for a lot of reasons, and um, I don't claim to be an expert on that theology um, or an expert on any of this, uh, anything I'm talking about today. But as I, I've read through the prophets in the Old Testament a lot this past year, um, and I, I've kind of come, one of the ways I've come to think about judgment, I don't think this is the, the only way to think about it, but um, it's kind of like the, the natural results of people's sinful choices and the logical consequences that, that come from Israel's choices in the Old Testament and from our choices. So judgment is kind of like God's truth acting as a light that illuminates the difference between wrong and right and his judgment of what is right over our own judgment of that. Um, so the, the human story is, is that over and over, ever since the garden, it's just us choosing our own judgment of what is right instead of his judgment of what is right. Um, and then things don't go well for us, and his judgment shines light on that, and our judgment always falls short. Um, so for Israel in this time, that judgment is coming in the form of the Babylonian invasion. Uh, it's already happening. They're already at the gates. For the second time, Jerusalem is under siege and about to fall. So... Babylon, as a nation in the Old Testament, it, um, it kind of starts all the way back in the Tower of Babel, and it's always kind of this symbol in the Old Testament for the human glorification of wealth and war. So Israel has brought, bought into that glorification of wealth and war, and it's, um, it's rebellion against God, and so it makes sense that the consequences of them worshiping warfare and money as an idol uh, has kind of brought the Babylonians right to their gates. So in the middle of this horrible time for Israel, this is one of the, like, hopeful sections of Jeremiah where it's not just all judgment, judgment, judgment. We get this really strange story of hope in the form of a land transaction. So Zedekiah is the king at the time, and he's put Jeremiah in prison for prophesying that the nation is going to fall to these Babylonians. 
Um, the invaders are, are already there. They're already moving in. They're setting up camp. But the king doesn't like hearing this bad news, and so Jeremiah is in prison. He, he wanted to hear Jeremiah tell him that it would all be okay and that if they all just fought hard, God would be on their side and everything would turn out rosy. Zedekiah's timeline is very different than Jeremiah's, than God's timeline. He wanted the immediate gratification and the immediate deliverance from Babylon. So the king assumes victory just with all this hubris of someone thinking that God's ultimate purpose is fighting on their own side, rather than looking inward to see if they are on God's side. I imagine him, like this king, just like waving flags for his nation and claiming like, these colors don't run and stuff like that. So Jeremiah doesn't tell the king what he wants to hear. In contrast to the king's assumptions about God giving them immediate victory, God tells Jeremiah to do this prophetic act of making a very bad land investment. So he buys this field from his cousin. I guess he was in like kind of a loosey-goosey prison where he could still just make land deals and do like this legal stuff. I don't really understand, but um, he buys this field from his cousin even though the land is already like pretty much lost to invaders. It's a horrible investment. It would be like as economically sensible as buying a blockbuster video store in 2013. Like just why, why would you do this? Um, so it's also really interesting that they make, a like the, the scripture goes into great detail about like the official legal show that they have of signing over the deed in front of the, the lawyers or the council or whoever it is. And then Jeremiah has the deed and he just tells his buddy Baruch to bury it in a jar. Um, so he, he says it has to be an earthenware jar so that they may last a long time. So God is, this shows us God's different timeline. It's different than the king's timeline, than our instant gratification timeline. Um, it's not instant victory. It's not instant prosperity. It's an investment that needs to last. Even though it looks really stupid and it doesn't make any sense and it looks hopeless in the moment, it lasts because the God of Israel, which is in currently total catastrophe, says that houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Walter Brueggemann writes, this little transition in the book of Jeremiah becomes the pivot of all biblical faith. The economy has sunk to zero. The prophet was compelled just at that low point to live in wonder and hope and expectation that God will work a newness that is inexplicable and beyond anything that we can ask or imagine. The little land purchase becomes a wedge for a new world of well-being that God will give, but he had to invest. So the prophet is showing that God will renew the covenant. He will return them from exile. He will write the covenant law in their hearts, and the Messiah will come eventually so that all nations will see God as the one true God. God is faithful to all these prom promises, even though Israel pretty much has never been faithful. Their sin will not stop God from accomplishing his purposes, which is being with them and being eventually with all nations, with us. I think uh, a lot of us get our relationship with God in this way backwards when it comes to his desire to be with us. We think that our sin and rebellion somehow changed God's desire to be with us and, 
and we have to be the ones to make it right. We have to fix our relationship with him to make us to make him love us again by like believing the right things, doing the right things. But he's he's already fixed it. He never stopped pursuing or desiring relationship with us. Our sin and rebellion definitely messes up a lot of things which we see around us every day in the world um, and the consequences and the judgments of those things that we do. But it doesn't change God's feelings about us as his creation. He wants to be with us. That's always my main takeaway when I read the Old Testament. Um, when you when you kind of take a step back from all the, the violence that's happening in the Old Testament and the warring nations and the the cultural stuff that doesn't really make sense to us because it's ancient Israel. Um, all you see is the story of those people breaking their part of the covenant with God over and over and over, and God is still showing them in all these new ways that his desire is for them to be their God. And so he's going to hold up his end of the deal no matter what. He's going to be faithful to Israel, even if it's after a long time of judgment or exile or catastrophe, or feeling like all hope is dead and buried deep in the ground. And he's also going to hold up their end of the deal for them. He's going to hold up our end of the deal, too, in Jesus. The buried deed shows us this covenant love that God has. The buried deed is a signpost for Jesus. It's Christ. Resurrection will come one day when Israel, for Israel, when houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in that promised land. And resurrection comes for the whole created world in Jesus. It's here now, but also not yet. So the epistle reading today, um, Paul writing to Timothy, it's pretty well known. Uh, you've probably heard it before, the, the root of all evil stuff about money. Um, I, feel, I feel like we've talked about money a lot lately. I was joking with Rob that Preston just wanted me to talk to you guys about money instead of him doing it again. <laughs> um, but money is honestly really hard, and, and I feel like I make it hard because it's so essential. It's so much of our daily life is tied up in earning it and spending it and managing it and fretting about it. Um, it's, it's inescapable. You can't just quit money. Every family here has their own little economy going on and it's within the bigger American economy and the global economy and it's just kind of everything around us. Um, but God's not asking us to, to quit money here. Um, he's not even asking everyone to not be rich. It actually says money is a root and not the root of many evils. And then it ends at the end of what Trisha read. Um, Paul is telling the people who are rich how they can make the best of those riches. He doesn't actually tell them, like, stop being rich, get rid of it all. He just exhorts them. So we know, like, it's not saying nobody can be rich. He just is saying don't obsess over your riches. Don't obsess over the, the pursuit of these things. Um, but, I mean, even knowing the issue is not with wealth itself, it's, still, it's hard for me to, to wrap my head around um, sometimes because we don't, we don't really see a lot of examples. <clears throat> there it goes. <clears throat> when we when we think about like rich people in our culture, like I don't know, 
uh, Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or whoever is rich. Like we don't we don't see examples of of how to be really rich with money, but also with godliness and contentment, like Paul talks about. So it's hard to know. Okay, what does what does that even look like? Um, I think maybe it is kind of all around us, but those people who are godly and content and also like have riches, they're not really publicizing that because that wouldn't be humble or whatever. <laughs> so, but, but maybe it's everywhere. Maybe there's people in churches everywhere. I think there are that are just quietly living this out and being super just awesome and generous and doing this non-showy stuff with their, their blessings that God has given them. Um, but even, you know, even people who aren't in that like super rich tax bracket, Paul's talking to us too. We, no matter how much money you actually have, this applies to us. This applies to us to not obsess over it and not um, hoard it and fret over it and to just openly give it away more. Um, so maybe there, there is a lot more of that, like... Maybe someone here is like a secret multimillionaire, and we don't know it, which would be very cool. It's the call-ins, isn't it? <laughs> um, no, I, but I think that I think there is just a, a lot of that in good, godly people around us that is just hard to see because they're not bragging about that. Um, but it seems like what is more common in our culture is this plague of discontentment, um, always striving. Uh, ambition, being a boss, and all that stuff, it's so glorified. If you if you walk into a bookstore, you know, you see the self-help section, and it's, they're rarely about just, like, how to be content. They're all about how to get more for yourself and more for your life and be more productive and be more successful and be a leader and all those things. So it seems like being completely content with where you are in life is is one of the most culture, counter-cultural things that we can do as Christians. We have so much already, um, but what people, I feel, I feel like as an adult, like at my age, when you're around people, all we want to talk about is like our next purchases and our next renovations and investments and upgrades and vacations and the economy and all that stuff. Um, and I'm certainly guilty of this. Like I want to be able to save up enough money to retire at 50 and travel and do whatever I want as much as the next guy. So when I focus on those things, I do really sometimes love money. I like to make plans. I like to save for things. I like, I'm teaching my kids to save their money for things. Um, these could all be great things, but not if I pursue them out of true contentment in God, who is the source of any riches we have in this life. This is the part that should make American middle-class Christ followers sound a little different in those conversations. But how? How can we point to Christ with our finances instead of using them to glorify ourselves? Paul here tells us the answer is contentment and generosity. The message translation says that contentment is the rich simplicity of being yourself before God. Before God, you are enough and you have enough. That idea is so beautiful. And, and when we know that, genero generosity flows from that. Our hands can open up to share instead of clenching more tightly to what we have so we can gain more and more and more. And this is actually the way that we can emulate God. Tim Mackey says, creation is an expression of God's generous love. He's the host 
and humans are his guests in a world of opportunity and abundance. And we are called to keep the party going to spread his goodness. When we don't live this way, we aren't trusting in God's abundance for us. We view everything through a lens of scarcity. When we keep our eyes on Jesus, we can live in his abundance. That's why Jesus always said crazy things like, just sell all your possessions or don't worry about what you're, or what you're gonna eat or what you're gonna wear. He was showing us that we can trust in God's abundance like him, even in this economy. He knew the real source of abundance is God. All this extra stuff we accumulate in this life is just a temporary fleeting joy, but God is the source of all that joy, of any joy. So this brings us to the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Um, I kind of wanted to skip this one because <laughs> it's really weird and hard to understand. Um, and because like there's all this afterlife talk that we have a lot of cultural baggage when it comes to talking about things like heaven and hell and the afterlife. Um, and I'm like a, a really an amateur, like I've said, um, about theology. So, but at the same time, we have to talk about it because it, the parable, it, it shows us the results of what loving riches can look like, what it can end up like. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized I had never, um, kind of given it serious thought and, and everything I'd heard about it in church before um, or like reading it as a kid, you have this kind of like easy takeaway when you're, when you're hearing this as a young person. It's just like, oh, you better, you better live right and you better be nice or you, this is what's going to happen to you and nobody can help you. Like the end. <laughs> no one can help you. Um, and if that's, if that's, like your takeaway from it, then it's kind of, why would you even read that? Um, so I don't, I don't think that asking these questions about what heaven and hell looks like is, is not really the most interesting question here. Um, instead, I, I want to try to think about what this tells us about Christ and his kingdom. Uh, so the man here called the rich man, he's kind of an easy villain. He's clearly set up to make you think of him as like this big, fat cat, rich guy wearing fancy clothes and feasting in the lap of luxury every day. And then there's Lazarus, who is dumped on his doorstep, and he's living just to eat scraps off his table, and he's having his wounds licked by dogs. Uh, the rich man ignores him. And so it's really easy for us also to just be like, yeah, that guy sucks. Like, rich people like him are the worst. I'm glad I'm not like him. Um, and then things get even weirder because they both die. And Lazarus, the, uh, the outcast on the doorstep, he is the only character um, in one of Jesus' parables that's given a name. And his name, Lazarus, means God is my help. So they both die. And because we think pretty cartoonishly in our culture about the afterlife, we assume that he just goes to heaven and the rich jerk guy goes to hell. But that's not exactly what it says. It says that La the angels take Lazarus, God is my help, to the lap of Abraham. Um, and so I learned that to ancient Jews, this was like a place to go and be with your other dead ancestors while you await the future resurrection. So the rich man is in torment in Hades, which to ancient Jews could have been a permanent destination or might not have been a permanent destination. Um, but 
Either way, it's clear that their fortunes are, are flipped completely, both of them. We know that in the kingdom of God, blessed are the poor and the first shall be last. Um, and I think we can see the ups, that upside down nature of the kingdom show itself here very clearly. What's really interesting is that even while in torment and desperately thirsting for just a touch of water, the rich man still doesn't get it. He still thinks the old order of things is operating, and he can still just order Lazarus around to serve him, like, come all the way down here and give me some water. He asks Abraham to warn his brothers about this, but he's not even getting it himself either. He still thinks his status and his riches can help him to manipulate the situation. Robert Farrar Kappen writes, Living well may be the world's idea of the best revenge, and it is certainly the human race's commonest criteria for distinguishing the saved from the lost. But in the mystery of the kingdom, it is precisely living badly, being poor and hungry and covered with repulsive sores that turns out to be the true vehicle of saving grace. So rich man still thinks his riches are his saving grace. He's dead in Hades, but he still hasn't died to himself. So then they have this whole conversation between him and Abraham about the people who haven't listened to Moses and the prophets, and they won't even listen to someone who rises from the dead. The rich man wants Lazarus to rise from the dead and go back to, to warn them, but Abraham says if Lazarus were to do that, they wouldn't listen. Um, this part is also really weird to me because Jesus is the one telling the parable. He knows that he's going to rise from the dead himself. But he also knows that even after seeing that happen, some people won't believe it. They won't believe in his upside-down kingdom where the outcasts like Lazarus are lifted up. So is that what he's referring to? I don't know. Um, I listened to Father Chris Green's podcast. He's a, um, another priest in our diocese that is an amazing teacher. <clears throat> and he was talking about this this week. Um, and he said just a lot of things that expanded my thinking about it, but, but one thing really stands out. He said, what if the point of the story is for us to want to give the rich man the drink of water? What if we see ourselves in him and his pridefulness, and we also see Jesus in him? as Jesus thirsted on the cross. Abraham in this story says that there is a huge chasm between where they are and where the rich man is, and no one can cross it. The kingdom of God is so different and so opposite from the kingdoms of this world, but we know Jesus is the one who crossed it. He came to the, this world in the incarnation, and then he went even further. He descended to the dead even across that chasm to where the rich man is. So we have all lived our lives in ways that look more similar to that rich jerk guy, trusting in our own resources rather than trusting in God is my help, like Lazarus. But Christ covered that chasm to pursue us because he still desired to be with us and for us to be his people. So maybe the point is for us to also desire that for all people, whether they are rich jerks or unloved outcasts. 
I honestly don't know, and I feel like I could I could study this for many years and just have more questions than answers. Um, but I, I think all of these these questions are more interesting for us to think about than just who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. So all three of our readings this week come together in a very cool way. Obviously, they all relate to this idea that our hope and our help is only in God and not in riches and resources or economic stability. There is this huge chasm between those things and the things that the world trusts in, between the kingdom of God and the things that the world trusts in. In the kingdom of God, the poor and the humble of spirit and the outcasts are the ones lifted up. We are called to live in that kingdom here and now. We can, we can die to ourselves and live that way here and now, even though it's not fully here yet. And all three of the readings also point to Christ as our only hope for doing this. He is the hero of these stories. He is the one who can save us from our hoarding, ungenerous, acquiring everything for ourselves nature. He was buried like Jeremiah's deed. He descended to the dead, resurrected again, and is still pursuing us as his people and asking us to put our hope in him alone. Amen. Amen.